Welcome to the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies presents Acamedia. That was boy, that's a we have like a we have a stacking of <laughs> prepositions going on now. That's it's, starting to get a little bit cumbersome. It's a little wordy. Um, do we need an acronym? So JCMS at AM. Oh man. I you know PAM. You know JCMS. We have two weeks left in the semester, and and this is what we're reduced to. The brain is going well. um, What we have for you here is basically our SEMS episode, and it's been a while since SEMS, or about a month or so. um, But we did a bunch of recording at SEMS, and so uh, and we're back and experiencing the end of the semester here. So we hope by this time it gets to your ears. You are also wrapping up your semester, so this will be fun listening for you. Yeah, nice way to reflect back on some of the. Conversations that that we heard. And yeah, I you had a, participated. In. I had a great SEMS. I don't know about you, Michael, but the main thing was number one, I had my paper written before I got there, Bonus. which is you know huge. And then secondly, it was over spring break, and usually that's when I have all of my grading to do. But for whatever reason, I had arranged it where I had done all of my grading, so I had no grading, no paper writing at SEMS. It was the greatest SEMS for me ever because it was all you know fun and mingling and smart things. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah. Of course, you lost your spring break. But. True. Oh, sorry. Well, sorry I, yeah. Well, then the first half of spring break was writing the paper, but it was one of those I'd been thinking about for a while, and so it just sort of came out, and I was nice. done with it. So that was good. Excellent. We won't have SCMS over a spring break next year because it's going to be early right. April. So, which of course means baseball season. Oh, in Colorado. Yeah. We got to look up who the Rockies will be playing. A mile high baseball. Oh, I love baseball. Baseball's back. And especially Yay. for that reliable friend every day with occasional off days, it's mm-hmm. there for you. Kind of like TV. Yeah. Oh, I love TV. Oh, TV's good. Let's talk about TV's okay. future. How is that for a segue? Yeah. So one of the things we did at SEMS, it was really uh, fun. There were a number of people on Twitter going into SEMS number of scholars who are all tweeting about the future of TV and, and having this discussion. But of course, as Twitter goes, it's not all that easy to have a real good discussion on Twitter because it's little and tiny and hard to track one response to the next. So we thought, well, let's sit down some of these people at the same table in the same room. My goodness, what a good idea. And have them talk, not just type out little things. Words. But words. Communicate words. And record them. Oh my goodness. So that other people not on Twitter could hear this. So that's what we did. This was our great idea. So we hope you like it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to give the bios of everyone involved in the roundtable here. What you're getting is a discussion among a group of scholars um, and including from non-U.S. sources, which I think is really key, um, talking about the notion of the future of TV and trying to make sense of some of the things that are happening with streaming and viewership and, and audiences and so forth. So I think this is a really fun conversation. It is definitely a fun conversation. All right. Now, let me give everyone uh, everyone's name and bios because they don't necessarily use them um, outside of just, you know, um, in passing, referencing each other. So I want to make sure everyone knows who you're hearing. The first voice you're going to hear is the chair of the roundtable, and that is Derek Compare, whose voice you have heard on this podcast before. He did an interview with uh, Bill Kirkpatrick about being a chair a couple episodes ago. Um, so he is chair and associate professor in the division of film and media at, uh, media arts at Southern Methodist university in the U S his research interests focus on media formations. And he is the author of rerun nation, how repeats invented American television and co-editor 
of Making Media Work, Cultures of Management in the Entertainment Industries. Uh, so again, Derek's the first voice you'll hear. And sorry for the sirens behind him for about a minute. It adds a, a frisson of energy. It does. Mate, you know, I don't know. I thought it was going to be, you know, they'd quickly turn around the corner and go, but they stayed. And so I don't know if they were there to take care of, you know, there was an SEMS workshop that got a hand or whatever. Well, sometimes do, things do get a little bit hot. Yeah, yeah. So sorry about the sirens, but they go away in about a minute. Um, so the first pick you're then here after Derek is Katherine Johnson. She's a new member of the faculty at University of Huddersfield in England and is the author of Branding Television. Um, and most importantly for this conversation, she is also the author of a new book called Online TV, which argues that we are now in, quote, an emergent Internet era that challenges the language and concepts that we have to talk about television as a medium. So it's great to hear her talk about that um, material. But if you want to read more, you can get that from her book. The next speaker we'll have, the second man's voice, is Peter Shapanik. And sorry, Peter, if that's not right. I hope it's close. Uh, he is an assistant, excuse me, an associate professor at Charles University in Prague in the Czech Republic. And he's written books on the Czech media industries of the 1930s and on the state socialist production mode. And outcomes of that research, uh, partly published in a, a book called Behind the Screen, Inside European Production Culture. And he's now leading the screen industries in Central and Eastern Europe research group. So that's a really great Eastern Europe. European perspective we're going to bring in here. The next woman's voice you'll hear after that, the one with a German accent, that's Barbara Goebel-Stoltz, uh, Senior Lecturer and Course Director in Media and Communications at the School of Media and Performing Arts at Coventry University in England. And her research focuses predominantly on the political economy of transnational media and television, its audiences, trade, and content practices across cultural and political divides. And then the final person you will hear, the second English-accented woman you'll hear, is Elizabeth Evans. She's Associate Professor of Film and Television Studies at the University of Nottingham in England, and her current research focuses on how audiences and practitioners define and manage engagement with screen content. She has an upcoming book from Rutledge called Understanding Engagement in Transmedia Culture, which will offer, quote, a new model for interrogating audience screen experiences and examining how practitioners' perceptions of those experiences overlap or differ from audiences themselves. So this it's is... A, it's a lot of smart people. A lot of smart people and people who are steeped in this research right now. And as I know from... I just came from a media industries class where we're steeped in things that are happening right now. It's so fun to do that because it's things that are happening right now. It's also exhausting because things are constantly changing. So I hate that. It's tough. You know, sometimes I think, God, if we could just teach like medieval literature and something that kind of stays the same. No, but they'll they probably come back and say, well, you know, you find new things. and Yeah, probably. But anyways, it's fun to try to keep track of all this. So we hope this yep. roundtable will give you some really new smart talking points to try to figure out and spread to your classes what exactly is going on in this TV world of ours. Bring on the smart words. So we're all gathered here today to talk about uh, streaming platforms. This is something that's always on our minds and every day, it seems, in our, in our daily work and certainly at the conference. Uh, we've already been, had a lot of papers and panels on this. So uh, we want to talk about what we think um, are the relevant, the most relevant aspects of streaming platforms for media scholars um, and the field more broadly to think about sort of the pressing questions and uh, also where things are headed. I like to think of this as... Um, 
a permanent kind of ongoing speculation, basically, on these platforms. There's never like a present that's really, really fixed for very long. It's always sort of moving on, and it's difficult to, to kind of hold on to it. So those sorts of aspects of the struggles I think we should talk about. Uh, I guess first if we could um, talk about the industrial strategies going on, what you see as the major kinds of uh, plays going on from people and the major tensions uh, that are determining the overall direction of things. So I think, Kathy, since you've got a great book on it out right now that just came out, you can, we'll start with you if you want to okay. jump with that. Well, oh, there's I mean, loads of different ways you can come in at this. So um, what I talk about in the book, four battlefields, so technology, content and IP, um, interfaces and algorithms. I think one of the ones that's, that's really interesting for me at the moment is around content and IP and what's happening with rights because you've got Disney launching, taking their rights off Net Netflix. Net you know, Rights have just become this massive battlefield. In the UK context, the BBC has... Um, put forward a proposal to extend the amount of time that content stays on iPlayer. So they've been pushing for a good three, four years to move iPlayer from a catch-up service to a sort of more, what we'd understand, I guess, as a VOD service. And um, yet they're hampered by regulation that says most of the content should only be on there for 30 days. And the stats show that Netflix in the UK has just massively, massively increased its numbers of subscribers, and that's been at the expense of iPlayer almost exclusively. So it, there's a real point of challenge, and at the moment, the regulator has pushed that into a public interest test. So you know, is it in the public interest that, um, that the BBC should be operating in this way? So I think that there's a real fight around rights and I'm kind of interested in how that might play out nationally and internationally. My sense is that you're going to get national markets where people hold on to rights so rights will be siloed in particular VOD services mm -hmm. but then internationally it'll, there'll only be a small number of international players so there'll probably be a much more vibrant international market for rights. I think that's where it's going but... So I'm looking at it from the perspective of uh, small media markets in Europe and more specifically the digital single market strategy of European Commission, which is uh, mostly about territoriality of copyright and geoblocking, as, as Katie already touched on that. And, um, you know, uh, the problem is that the uh, legacy media are opposing uh, the digital single market strategy. They want to keep the territory by territory licensing practices uh, for many reasons. We can maybe come back to it. But the global platforms actually are uh, in favor of introducing that because it will give them more power. That's one perspective. And um, I think that there are like two dynamics I'm observing in, in the streaming uh, uh, field. One is short form content closer to social media. Uh, which is like more spreadable. It it's not affected by territoriality in the same way. And then you have Netflix, Amazon, and the others, which is more similar to pay cable TV in many ways. And it's more affected, especially in small markets. It could be more difficult for the local distributors to buy rights of the uh, expensive premium content, and it will be more difficult for the local streaming platforms to survive, especially if they are mainstream and don't have a very strong niche like art house documentary or something like that. And then the third field I'm looking at is, is public service media and how they are adapting to uh, to online, uh, what kind of online strategies they develop, but maybe we will come back to it later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So the the borders, the the, the old territories, the sort of uh, prevailing ways of doing business, they're still they're still there. They're still yes, you know yes. having this this big impact on things. And I think even in terms of uh, programming, because as you mentioned, the short firm programming and yeah. uh, YouTube is a model for that, obviously, and and others being a different kind of beast than than the more expensive uh, programming that's out there. And this this dovetails with uh, with uh, Barb's paper uh, yesterday in terms of the the notion of, of affect, the notion of what the sort of these forms of programming kind of mean to people and, and how they identify them with particular platforms and and how that spills over into not only what's kind of produced and what's distributed, but how that how that act, actually viewers respond to that and users respond to that. So if you want to talk yeah, right. About and I think it kind of um, is anchored a little bit in a historic moment because all of the trades that happened beforehand in broadcast trash, traditional sense are usually no longer tied to the brand that they're originating from. And so I'm really interested in the promotional culture that comes with these online streaming services. What are they telling people that they are selling? And is it really the programs or is it a notion of citizenry that they're interested in? And I think specifically with Netflix, which a lot of us seem to be quite consumed with, but it expands to Amazon and other streamers and national providers of services and programming. It's really a debate of how much globality can we tell our audience we're offering them. And I think that considering how small in reality the numbers of viewers are for these streaming services that are operating on a global scale, it is creating a hierarchy in viewers, those that can tap into these streaming services and buy into these transcultural notions of global citizenry and those that are delegated to a more passive consumer position. Hmm. I'm interested in whether we should be concerned or not about there's a particularly in the public service context there's been a long-standing aspect of public service broadcasting which is about the local and it's had two perspectives to it so one is about local production cultures and one is about national culture more generally and the sort of sense of a need to preserve a sense of national culture and in the EU the European Audiovisual Media Services Directive has this sense of preserving European culture whatever that means is there even such a thing as European culture and I don't I'm I'm unsure in my own mind where about how I feel about those debates because I think in the context also of growing nationalism what does it mean to say we need to preserve some kind of sense of British national culture or, or whatever you know and you talk to people and I was talking to someone who was saying, yeah, but, you know, I'm a, a British Indian and I can go onto Netflix and I can watch all of this fantastic Indian content and it's brilliant and why do I care about some sense of British content that doesn't actually speak to my identity? And so I'm, I don't know, I have an answer to that, but I, I, it, I kind of worry at it. I think that there's also a sense that a lot of that is just exaggerating things that have always been there mm. so um you know think you you think about television in the uk and there's always been this sort of threat of americanization and and um you know should the bbc be importing programs or not and sometimes it seems acceptable for them to do that sometimes it doesn't um children's tv is obviously a big part where a sense of them there must be british children's content for our audiences um, and that's been there for for decades that's well within the kind of broadcast um uh, period of television but equally what you're talking about kathy so um sort of the very early days of on of uh, da illegal downloading was partly used so people could get access to 
content from their home nation. Um, so they could kind of do those kinds of things before there was any kind of legitimate service that allowed them to do that. So there's a kind of history of this that I think is, yes, things are changing really rapidly, but there are kind of threads that go back into sort of the last 10, 20, 30 years of um, nascent online viewing, but also broadcasting that the, there's like a moment where all of this is becoming really exaggerated and really kind of suddenly it's exploding and becoming more obvious. But there are kind of tendrils back that I think we can sort of look at um, as much as we can. And a lot of it's hard to trace now, but there are kind of uh, precedents of this, I think, sort of beforehand as well. And I think with the German market, the outspokenness of people about how much they hate the German public television and German, generally speaking, television <coughs> provisions um, is a narrative that actually is repeated in several small market nations. And this reach out to international material as identifiable, as creating cultural capital, that is a long standing history as well and goes back to well before the Netflix moment. I think this streaming environment that we're looking at and we're so fascinated by it, is really a reaction to what came before, but even though it's only so, it gets out of But I also think that that's a really interesting point of comparison because I think it really, really varies. So actually what the cultural attachment is to the legacy players is massively different in different yeah. contexts, I think. So, you know, in Denmark, for example, there's a really strong attachment to the public service broadcasters and they're seen as really, like, great and they need to be preserved and there's that really, you know, and that it's like, that's completely different from, say, Germany or Italy whatever. I would just add to this uh, the, the, the issue of non-national European content as, as the uh, you know, reports of audiovisual observatory uh, call it. So it's, it's not just about like, preserving the space for the national uh, heritage and, 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 and media industries, but uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the fantasy of the single market in Europe created this idea that now all the European nations can share their you know, uh, heritage uh, together, but it's not happening. You know, uh, so why it's not happening? Although, although we have all these, uh, you know, services, uh, online online distribution services, uh, you know, uh, audiences from individual countries don't have access, and maybe don't even have demand for uh, other uh, national uh, visual audiovisual cultures. So the, the big issue is whether whether uh, especially SVOD services can can help uh, circulate European content. Across Europe, that's the, I would say that's a key issue. And and a new research on on that uh, conducted by a group of European researchers in, in in the UK and Denmark and elsewhere show that it's actually just two percent of European films which travel well. You know, uh, so so you have a lot of European content in cinemas, television, uh, TVOD and SVOD. But but those who really do well as as compared to the U US content, it's extremely small number. So so that's that's a big issue behind all these uh, regulatory initiatives, I think, to help European content circulate across Europe. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. I was going to say, in the, um, in the North American context, uh, in a similar sort of way about the content, the content owners uh, and where those, where those properties are ending up, um, I know, um, as Sarah uh, Tinish pointed out in her paper yesterday, the interesting thing in Canada is that CBC content is kind of surfacing on Netflix and uh, it's not only being you know, broadly seen outside of Canada, but within Canada, uh, so that, that the younger audiences are getting more um, 
seeming more access and more sort of affect with it too. And so it is this, this mixed situation where where you're right. We we have a kind of almost a long tail model as you're saying, where there's going to be a few big hits and then a lot of little things that that are just not really getting a lot of traction. Um, but that does raise a question then of. of what are the big things? What are the sort of uh, national or regional kinds of, of cultural kinds of things that come in there? Because we're also in an era, too, in, in terms of the programming, that um, uh, the big ticket programming tends to have a particular sense of place and space in it. And that is kind of part of the marketing push for, for a lot of these programs, that they're set in particular places and they're marketed that way. But the question is, what, who is that appealing to, right? Who is, who is that really kind of resonating with? Is it, is it the same kind of global upper middle class cosmopolitan that would always go to the art house cinemas and does it really kind of matter uh, uh, down the way with that? Um, can we talk about uh, the content uh, and the content versus the distribution aspects of this in terms of content owners uh, moving to a system where we're, we're having more of these sorts of silos. I think Kathy was starting to talk about this a little bit, and it's certainly something with Disney launching a streaming service later this year and Warner Media doing the same and, and the rumors sort of circulating of others kind of trying to do this of content being pulled from licensing deals into kind of their own sort of silos. What sort of impact do you think this will have across the board on things, particularly in terms of uh, how people, how users are, are responding to, you know, how they're getting access to things, and then on um, how producers of content are going to be able to to function in this environment too. Is this sort of throwback, just to go, you know, back with, with what Liz was saying to these older, these sort of notions of of um, vertical integration and of, of branded content and owned content on on particular platforms? Are we moving back to something like that, even even when we have all the sort of global access to things? Well, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think um, coming from a kind of audience perspective of it, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see if and where there are spaces of resistance around this kind of thing. Um, because I was struck when I was listening to Kathy's talk about interfaces yesterday, that a lot of the, the fact that Netflix tries to hide the search function and, and things like that is kind of to hide the fact that they have a limited catalogue yep. um, because the one thing that's going to make you not want to subscribe is that you go and search and you can't find stuff over and over and over again so they're very much and that Netflix is just going to have to do that more as their um, uh, catalogue shrinks as people take things away um, so I, yeah I kind of I wonder where there's the there's going to be the pushback um, and what that pushback is going to look like and, and I you know I always find that audiences are far more conservative with a small C um, than perhaps some of the big tech companies think they are and uh, yeah that the, where are people actually going to start resisting this kind of thing and will people not want to go and buy a Disney version and a Warner Brothers version and a CBS version and a whoever else version um, so in the UK I guess the big example will be BritBox you know are people really going to want to pay for a BBC and ITV online viewing service and I I I genuinely don't know whether people are going to really want to do that. Um, that, that, yeah, this kind of, A, there's a, there's a sort of sense that audiences are going to have to know who makes stuff in a way that perhaps they don't in quite the same way now. Yes, you know what you'll find on the BBC and you'll know what you'll find on ITV. Um, but you'll need, there's going to be a level of literacy that's, an industry literacy that's needed for people to be able to find and navigate towards stuff. Um, and how real audiences are actually going to respond to that, I think will be very interesting and I actually think it's quite hard to 
predict at the moment. Um, so yeah, I think as they start to splinter, um, I, I wouldn't. My instinct is that there might be a bit of pushback against that, and that it just makes it harder to find stuff, and then people are not gonna are gonna get grumpy about it because nobody wants to work that much to find a TV program. And one of the ways I'm thinking about this is around this concept, I don't know if it's a good concept or not, of, of the appization of television. So the idea that you get, you, as you say, you get these kind of content silos. So if we think about the digital era of TV as like this massive explosion in channels, so what we're w- witnessing is a massive explosion in VOD services, and I think you, you'll start getting channels disappearing and they're kind of going to be replaced by these things. And then those become the, sp- the places where content is going to be increasingly siloed because that you know Disney are going to want to hold hold on to their exclusive rights Netflix obviously is uh, they they are trying to create exclusive rights around their originals and then the question becomes how many services and I don't think this is just for subscription I think it's for advertising ones as well how many services are people going to want to use how many apps how many apps can you genuinely have that you can actually that you actually use all the time you know and there's probably not going to be very many of them I mean there's a reason why there's been three dominant television channels in most markets and some of that was infrastructure but a lot of it was also just you know you think about the explosion of digital channels and most people watched eight of them right so there's there's only a certain amount that that people are going to be able to manage so I think that two things will probably emerge around that one is aggregators so I think that the light that you've got existing aggregators like the pay tvs and they aggregate channels into bundles, and I think there's an opportunity for them to become aggregators of VOD apps, and they can bundle them into a subscription with your internet service provision, and so you don't really know exactly how much you're paying for each of them, but at least you're only managing one subscription that you have to pay, and then you you know, you know get your kind of bundle that includes Netflix or whatever, and um, maybe BritBox or iPlayer or whatever, you know, all the different ones that you perhaps want. So I think that they'll be some moves around that area and then I also think the other player which we were talking about in the panel yesterday is discovery apps and the role that they might play just because it's like where is this thing you know where can I find this this content and and then I can figure out right am I going to can I then be bothered to or do I already subscribe to or you know this particular service so I think there's a whole set of interesting questions around that yeah I think uh, related to that is uh, and uh, things like niche streamers that that are um, targeting content to very specific audiences. And this, and for me, I, I, the canary in the coal mine for me is DC Universe, which I think is is allowed to go on because uh, it had just started when AT and T AT and T's acquisition of Warner Media was was going through. But to me, and I was talking actually to a, a DC Comics freelancer last night about this. We're not we're not sure how it's all working basically because it's it's ten ten dollars a month for a very niche you know we're not only just talking comics fans but DC comics fans specifically and I just wonder how is that sustainable to have they're doing live action programs and series and things like this and and they're not the only ones attempting to do this and so I just wonder if the big content providers if this is going to be an issue for this how can how can these niches continue to do this unless they go with the route of, of perhaps just older library content, legacy content that's already really cheap. And I think BritBox is kind of a little bit of that model, and, and, and some of these, these services are. Um, most of Amazon Prime is exactly that sort of thing. But, but I guess if, if you've got a niche service, maybe that's a way to do that. Um, AVOD services like Tubi 
and uh, and Pluto that, that do these sorts of things too, where it's free, but they have a lot of advertising, and it's just really old, cheap content. I, I think that these, some of these niche, niche services can actually survive pretty well in the competition because what, what they can do is they can, uh, you know, brand themselves as uh, selectors of, of content, like trusted selectors, uh, by linking offline and online activities. So, for example, you have, you have some uh, VOD services linked to film festivals. Like there is a documentary VOD service operating in Europe. Uh, uh, Doc Alliance, uh, and it's six or seven documentary film festivals uh, linked with this VOD. So there's a very strong connection between a community of uh, not just uh, audiences, but also uh, filmmakers themselves and the, and the VOD. Uh, and this, uh, you know, makes it stronger in, in, in the competition uh, against more mainstream, uh, more, more global transnational uh, VOD portals. And there are other examples, uh, like, like uh, Mubi is m more like an ongoing festival, right? So it, it has this kind of festival mentality, but, but there are VODs more, more locally based, linked with, uh, for example, a group of art house movie theaters. So, so they, they're aiming at uh, like channeling these uh, art house uh, you know, audience, uh, theater audience audiences uh, to uh, internet to it's basically the same community going from from movie theaters to mm -hmm. to their VOD portals mm -hmm. and uh, you know this this is uh, a model which which is maybe uh, more sustainable especially in the small markets or in some niche uh, you know fields um, I talk about them in my book as content natives so mm -hmm. they're like the um, companies that are moving into VOD that already have access to IP mm -hmm. so and they have strong brands and strong relationships yeah. with very loyal audiences yeah. who are prepared to pay and so one of the benefits that they have is because they already have existing businesses mm -hmm. and this is a kind of add-on onto the top mm -hmm. of their mm -hmm. existing business and maybe it's slightly different to the DC uh, model but no one's really right no one writes about them and I think they're really mm -hmm. interesting I mean in the UK the example I use a lot in the book is Globe Theatre right so the Globe mm -hmm. Theatre sort of really um, important very very popular with tourists and mm -hmm. they have a Globe Theatre player mm -hmm. and it's um, some free content and then the rest is transaction mm -hmm. and you can watch um, basically um, recordings of the previous productions mm -hmm. so they have those recordings anyway they own the IP to them it doesn't cost a great deal to then offer that and it's an additional sort of revenue source that they can build on top of their businesses so I think there is space mm -hmm. for that if you've got the right brand and the right audience mm -hmm. for those kinds of niche services I think the idea of brand here kind of speaks directly to curation right so this notion that with curation comes privilege and with privilege is something um, that most people are willing to pay money for I think the problem in that original question may lie more with people that are us <laughs> that may have a little less of a selective drive and more of a we need to know everything that's out there <laughs> um so because I think this curation moment is going to channel the ultra niche markets that are already in existence and is going to speak to them very directly if I tend to poll my students every year and so I have about 300 poll answers right now and they become much more selective in identifying what they like and dislike mm -hmm. um, while at the same time also being very medium specific which is kind of scary but um, genre wise or what they're willing to engage with and what they're willing to pay for they're very aware of what's out there and so I think they will become the curators um, 
customer of the future quite easily. Mm-hmm. But brand is key, and how does that translate, especially on an international market as well? Mm-hmm. And then that <clears throat> that becomes really interesting within the context of public service where there's been that ideology of discovery and serendipity and that you know the 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 bbc one channel is to show you stuff that you might not go and find otherwise that there's that that kind of philosophy that's underpinned a lot of european television that is about broadcasting as a service and educating and informing and and sort of bringing exposing people to content that they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to before that becomes really challenged in that context so in for the non-uk listeners maybe but in in the uk you have walter presents and i'm somewhat obsessed with the notion of walter presents because it is an actual person that is providing curation information about the shows that they have selected to include in this almost sub channel of the all four provisions And it is really very much feeding into this notion of discovery. And here is something that you need to know about and comes with this privilege of having the curation from Walter. True, but you have to be interested in foreign language television drama or non-English, sorry, non-English language, foreign, uh, non-English language TV to go to Walter Presents. Yeah. Yeah, So, So for that kind of audience that would never think of watching something with subtitles... Uh, it works right you know that is still the brand that is attached to it though spins that narrative yeah of course it is for the people that are already interested yeah so when i interviewed people i play this was this is back in 2015 so it's going back a little bit but they were doing a big relaunch of iPlayer and so curation was one of the things they talked about so they they talked about like the big C the big C had been content and now the big C was curation and um, so they were at that point talking about whether they could build in a notion of serendipitous discovery which is very much tied to a public service sense of a mixed diet of programming um, into iPlayer and then we sort of Paul and I Paul Grange and I wrote about that um, but we didn't really see it. it it didn't seem to be an evidence in iPlayer but then I have noticed recently in iPlayer that iPlayer have um, for a couple of years now adopted autoplay so when something finishes and something else starts and it used to be autoplay the next episode but I've noticed it started to autoplay other stuff so I'm wondering whether I don't know if this is but I'm wondering whether that is then finally getting around or, or figuring out a way of building in serendipitous discovery into the mechanisms that we sort of now understand through which SVODs and VODs operate. Well, that, I, I suspect we spoke to the same people at, at iPlayer, but um, so around a similar time, having a conversation with them about it be, them, them wanting the kind of people, not algorithm mm. thing, that they, they wanted the kind of logic of scheduling, which is a, a, a scheduler is a person. So, you know, television channels, it's, it's an individual or it's a team of individuals that decide what follows what um, and getting that into what is an automated algorithmic system. So there's this kind of, this is where kind of the algorithm thing comes in, in that it's, you know, a, a programmed system, which yes, somebody can program it, but there's an element of there's li- there's limited refinement that an individual can do within an algorithm versus a, a curator, you know, a Walter figure yeah. who says, well, actually, if you like this thing, oh, you might like this other thing over here that isn't tied by keywords, isn't the same genre, or doesn't feature the same star, or or any of the kind of things that could easily plug into an algorithm. There's the kind of the the people, the the 
person quality of it um, and where that comes in um, versus the algorithm. And then you have Netflix tweeting and acting as a person. As a person. Yes. So their brand becomes a lovable character that is curating for you. Yes, even and though they're obscuring really the algorithm while celebrating it. Yeah. Actually, what also happens with Netflix is that there is this like informal field around Netflix of sort of fan curators. I think in, in, in many countries, maybe in most of the Netflix markets, you have these sites uh, built by uh, fans who are writing extensively about what's new on Netflix, uh, how you can, you know, uh, make your choices, how can you combine uh, films or series together, and what will be out of Netflix soon, so you, w you should watch it. So, so you have all these uh, informal curators, sort of, around Netflix, some of them even talking, trying to talk directly to Netflix uh, to, to make some demands. So I, I have this uh, example now from Slovakia, who, which is a country with a very close language to the Czech Republic, where I am from. And they, they lobbied Netflix to introduce Czech localization into the Slovak catalog, and they, uh, and they were successful in the end. So there is some kind of exchange between the formal and informal in Netflix. Uh, also with subtitling, they, they hire all these uh, fan suburbs, uh, not Netflix directly, but, but the companies working for Netflix. So that, that's maybe a kind of new field as well. Of curating, in a way. Yeah, and I think that all these things in terms of uh, curation and brand, they all really tie together in this way. So even even if you've got algorithms and machine learning, kind of driving the bus, at a certain point, there's humans involved in the process that are that are making these decisions, and then sometimes they really try to foreground this. And so I know uh, Spotify, for example, will have these curated playlists, and and you can follow particular artist tastes and things like that. Um, I keep thinking in our discussion about Alamo Drafthouse, and if they were to do a streaming platform, um, it would be a similar sort of thing where their brand is, they've got a loyal audience for their brand of theaters, and a streaming platform would be the same kind of thing. It's almost a Walter Presents, because they do have a film series like that called the American America Genre Film Association. You don't know what you're going to get, but you trust Alamo to deliver something you know, that, that, uh, that may be there for that. Um, are there any other things about streaming platforms just kind of on the horizon any any kind of projections uh it, we we're, we try to back off from that we try not to make this those projections and speculations but it's it's impossible not to in in these situations because it's always so fluid um my own sense is that the events that are happening now and over the next year we'll know in a couple of years i think something will shake out that'll be different from where we are now uh which, which might be a little bit more stable but But we're really on the cusp of, of those big changes for the next chapter in these changes. But um, we can just go around and see what what do you think the big big things going on right now that we should uh, pay attention to on this front? So I think there's three things. I'm um, interested in what's going to happen to the chan digital channels that really blossomed in the digital era. So the rerun channels, for example, the likes of Discovery as a brand um, which has kind of built its business around a digital model of a multiplication of channels. How there, There's a big challenge, I think, for those. I think we're going to get a shrinking of the number of, of channels that exist. The channels are still going to exist, but they're going to be a shrink. There's going to be a shrink, I think, and a shift more to an on-demand model in general. So I think that's re something that's really interesting to look out for. Um, I'm trying to remember what my other two things were now. Um, uh, I think that um, there's... I'm interested in 
what's going to happen to Netflix because it doesn't have a sustainable business model. So I suppose the way I'm thinking about that is maybe who's going to buy Netflix, really, because they've definitely got a brand that's worth buying. So um, I'm I'm thinking about Apple. Apple have really not been very good at moving into content and... It, I would have thought that would be a very attractive buy for them because it would, you know, it would just they could just kind of get all of that expertise and the brand and the original content, and um, would wouldn't have to worry quite so much about the sustainability of the business model because they can balance it off the other parts of their business. So, um, so I'm, yeah, I think what's going to happen to to Netflix is kind of um, and is a sustainable business model around Netflix. And the third thing, this is a very UK thing, but Liz mentioned earlier, BritBox. So I don't, some American listeners might be aware of BritBox was a joint venture by BBC and ITV to develop a kind of via commercial subscription VOD service overseas. Um, and they announced last month that they were going to launch this in the UK, which is just the weirdest decision because they already have iPlayer and um, ITV has uh, ITV Hub, so they have their own standalone free. I mean, ITV Hub is ad-funded, iPlayer is free, and it's not advertiser-funded, it's funded through the licence fee. Um, they already have those existing things, and so they're proposing to launch this subscription service. It, who's going to pay for it? What For what? And they're going to produce original content for that that's not going to be on there? It doesn't make any sense to me, although... The idea that the UK's free-to-air public service broadcasters should join together to try and create uh, an, a VOD service that has the scale to compete with these big global players that are emerging is very sensible. But to launch BritBox alongside iPlayer and as a subscription service makes it just doesn't make any sense. So. I'm very, I'm so, just so fascinated. They haven't announced what the price point is going to be or what the strategy is. So um, I'm very, very interested to see how that shakes out. Okay, I, I maybe see a potential for like more disruptive change in this field of short form uh, online only content. Uh, what um, Stuart Cunningham and David Craig call uh, social entertainment. Uh, and um, uh, I see it in Eastern Europe where um, traditional or, or, or like Netflix-like platforms are not very strong, but uh, Czech Republic has the actually the, the only uh, competitor to Google in a full search uh, market, which still has some substantial share on the local market. It's called Sysnum. And that's probably the reason why uh, there is a, there's the strongest web TV portal in the country, in, in, in this part of Europe, and is the biggest producer of, of um, like online video content, uh, very popular um, political uh, satires and so on. And this this uh, field between like social media, uh, web series, uh, user generated content, mobile games, I, I think that this is something which will which will strive, and it's it's extremely uh, transformable. Etan Tusi recently called it um, uh, procrastination economy in in his new book, and I think that our habits, our fast lives, you know, uh, sort of play uh, into the uh, hands of these uh, producers of, of short-term content because they're able to target our habits better 
commuting, waiting, you know, these interstitial moments in our lives. And he, he calls, uh, he, he has this uh, title in one chapter that the lunchtime is, is, is the new prime time. And I think if you, if you look at, uh, at kids and younger audiences, that's that's maybe uh, you know social groups where we can see that this is this is maybe the dynamics which will which will change the future of, of audiovisual entertainment online. Yeah. For me, it's what audiences actually do with this stuff, um, and I think that's going to take more than a few years to play out. Um, and you know, I I have consistently seen audiences being far more conservative than I think, as I said, than academia or the industry. Um, assume they are um, I think the question of what the next generation do when they grow up is really interesting and um, we have a PhD student at Nottingham um, who's looking at that the kind of longitudinal changes over the past 10-15 years or so um, and that came from a place where the question was what's going to happen in 10 years as you know teenagers people in their 20s grow up have families get jobs do they go back to broadcast TV um, as their sort of lifestyle changes and we can't, we can't really predict that um, and and yeah this is I think this is definitely a moment of the industry kind of waking up to this stuff waking up to net so the, the legacy broadcasters waking up to Netflix and thinking okay we better do something let's create Britbox or whatever and not maybe entirely thinking it through um, but sort of where audiences actually are with this stuff and how much, you know, um, I always sort of just remember that this whole movement came because audiences did it first. So as soon as the technology, the, the infrastructure was there to transfer high quality bandwidth data or video, audiences were doing this before anybody had a, anybody in the industry was even thinking about it. So this was entirely audience driven. But at that point, it was on audience terms, and they were doing it, and it was a small number, and they were kind of doing it how they wanted to. So now that the the big players are actually doing stuff, how audiences go along with it, or how they resist it, or how they hack things. So Barb yesterday had a really nice example of subtitles on Netflix, where you know there are all these hacks where people try and make Netflix work better for them. Um, that's what, for me, that's what's really interesting, and I think we're a long way from knowing. I, Maybe it'll never actually settle down. You know, maybe we're going to be in this state of constant flux of things. Um, but I'm really interested to see how much of this is actually accepted by audiences and how much is resisted and how much people just, at the end of a long day, when you've had, you've had to deal with really horrible colleagues or students or you just don't, you're just exhausted, do you really want to have to think, which of my seven VOD services do I want to go on to to find the programme that I want to watch? Or are you just going to turn on BBC One? Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm very interested to see how that plays out. And I'm interested to see why you would go for just BBC One. <laughs> but, but no, but it's actually what I'm interested in because I think in our, to me, honestly, still somewhat odd return to media deterministic conversations of trying to find terminology to put our finger on some things that maybe are more obvious um, then I think we give them credit for when we write about them. If it's about focusing down rather than actually expanding interdisciplinarily or looking at approaches that allow us to view the ecosystem 
rather than individual media, which I'm yeah. really obsessed with and which really ticks me off and I'm already getting tension in my system. Mm -hmm. But I'm completely with you on that. But I guess what I'm saying is I'm really interested to see what the communication is. What is the process of getting audiences to work with industries and small nations, um, small market nations, or across the globe, to identify which interface they want to deal with. What is the communication communication that comes from the providers? What is the relationship they build with the audiences? What gets them to think of just BBC as something that's easy and an always right choice? Mm -hmm. So, what are they telling us that makes us buy into them? Well, that's a personal obsession of mine with power structures, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, yeah, so I think we need to maybe all, from our vantage points, invest some time and space on looking at the processes at large. All right. I think that's a great place to enter conversation. We've solved all the things, obviously. We know exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. So uh, thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a good conversation. It was a great conversation. That and it seems like so, like, dated. Well, yeah, a month ago. I mean, oh, my like, God. Not, you know, three weeks. Keep up with the times, y'all. Because, oh. yeah, since that conversation, we've had Apple's presentation of what we still don't know will be in the fall. And then Disney Plus's very detailed presentation of what will be coming uh, with Disney Plus. That Everything they've always had. For then... only six ninety nine. I, well, the thing is, I would sign up for that, like the Pixar catalog alone. I would pay six ninety nine a month, so I'll I'll be there. I'll be there paying. Which, yeah, this has been then the you know conversation happening in the subsequent weeks about all these changes, just kind of huge. You know, anyone from saying, well, Netflix is done, or you know, Netflix will survive alongside Disney Plus, or you know, networks are dead, or whatever. There's so much conversation about what's coming yeah. next, and we don't know. One of the things that really strikes me is just how much um, how much content and how many local media cultures are going on that, you know, just completely invisible to me. Mm. And I'd love being able to kind of be uh, the fly on the wall listening to some of these conversations and thinking about things that I should follow up on and learn about. And, yeah. um, you know, I try not to see it as a, as a, as a catastrophic thing, like, oh no, that, you know, we're, we're like, have all these like isolated uh, cultural silos, but it's actually kind of amazing to think about how much, rich material there is that's worth exploring. Well, and especially I was so glad that we were able to get such a significant non-U.S. panel yes. into the round table because the British perspective, the Eastern European perspective, the German perspective, all of that, we are, and we, I'm speaking of like me and, and, and probably you as well, not speaking for other scholars who might be paying you know wider attention. I mean, I follow British media and that, so that discussion about what this new Brit box in Britain will be, you know, I'm cued in on that, but these larger issues of, and, and especially how much, you know, Netflix being global and the implications of that and what you know and even I'm you know my, my students always you know I bring this up in terms of like Netflix is in every country in the world but not every country in the world has developed broadband and what are the implications for Netflix mm -hmm. you know what it, what's at stake for Netflix is increasing subscribers and so what you know they're going to have like a Marshall plan to introduce broadband to the world to you know improve their um, subscribers, I don't know, but there's so many implications beyond just the U.S. perspective that I yeah. thought that was a really valuable aspect of the roundtable. Yeah, and it, and it will of course continue to shift, not just because of you know uh, expansion of of technology infrastructures and 5G and all that kind of stuff, 
Um, but also the renegotiation of some of these political and economic boundaries. I mean, I wonder what what Brexit will do. Mm. Um, and it may not, and it may not, you know, Brexit may not happen, which would just probably be just fine. But even if there is no direct regulatory um, implication, which is obvious, is often not the case with with Netflix because it kind of sits outside of um, na- uh, national media regulations, it'll be interesting to see whether or not there are ways in which the political implications of the kind of renegotiation of, of some of the political and economic relationships in Europe will have an impact on on some of this uh, content. Yeah. And also in terms of the technology relationships with China, yeah. which I'm not super confident in our current administration to be able to work those things out no. to our advantage. So No, probably not. No. All right. Confidence is thin. Yeah. Well, well, we'll see what happens with that, too. Yeah. Way to go to the dark side. Okay. You just, like, pulled that one out there. That's good. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Uh, let's let's rescue us back, because our second segment is a really fun uh, part of, or was a really fun part of SCMS. Of course, we, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the SCMS where we had the same hotel as the Furries, and this time we shared a hotel with the Emerald City Comic Con. Is that I correct? I believe that is correct. Emerald City Comic Con. Yes. And so... Um, it was really fun to have those interactions with uh, with fans, and so one thing I wanted to explore when I was you know seeing this happening is sort of like what what I did when we had the furries was I wanted to f- interview scholars to see what they thought of this, and so in particular. Um, and speaking of the furries, you're going to hear from Paul Booth again. He was one of our furry uh, fans who who I interviewed. Um, but I wanted to especially reach out to those who are very uh, you know common SCMS goers, and then very common convention goers, Comic-Con goers, and those two people I selected were Matt Hills and Paul Booth. So I wanted to find out what their experience was like bouncing between, you know, a fan convention and SCMS. So that is that conversation here. Let me introduce you to Matt and Paul if you're not familiar with them. So Matt Hills, who is the British voice that you'll hear here, he is professor of journalism and media in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at the University of Huddersfield with uh, Cornell Sandvoss. He is the director of the Center for Participatory Culture there. He has written six uh, sole-authored research monographs, starting with Fan Cultures in 2002, and most recently, Doctor Who, The Unfolding Event in 2015, and he's published more than 100 book chapters and journal articles Crikey. in the areas yep, of media fandom. This bio, bio could have been really long. I'm giving you the short version here. Mm-hmm. Um, in the areas of media fandom, cult and film TV, and audiences in the digital era. So our other uh, conversationalist here, the one with the American accent, is Paul Booth, an associate professor of media and cinema studies in the College of Communication at DePaul University of Chicago. He researches fandom, new media, games, technology, pop culture, and cultural studies. He is the author or editor of 10 books, including most recently The Wiley Companion to Media Fandom and Fan Studies. Uh, I also wanted to mention he is the organizer of the annual DePaul Pop Culture Conference, at which fans and scholars come together in thoughtful discussion of pop culture text. The next conference is scheduled soon may 4th and it will be focused on disney so right if you're around in the, the chi- corner sh- yep if you're in the chicago area may 4th depaul pop culture conference all right more good words more uh, good words. and of course some smart words from uh dr becker i got questions yeah. i always got the questions all right let's hear them Thank you. 
So we are at SCMS Seattle and in the uh, conference hotel, and I've been watching with great fascination this crossover we have between SCMS and the Emerald City Comic Convention. And so I brought two folks here who have experienced both of those, uh, Matt Hills and Paul Booth. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more from you about the kind of coming together of these experiences. So you're very experienced SCMS goers, you're experienced con goers. What's it been like having these two you know, come together in one place? Well, given, given that I can only physically be in one place at one time, <laughs> um, there's been an element for me of kind of competition between the two. So I knew I was gonna go, going to go to ECCC, but I was trying to work out what, what day um, that I would actually do that, which meant that I had to miss your paper. I noticed. Yeah, um, but that was unavoidable. Fair enough. Um, because, yeah, because um, Peter Capaldi was doing a talk on a, on a certain day. Um, so there's that kind of thing of working out kind of where you might need to be at, kind of, uh, at any given time, I guess. Yeah. Um, but also for me, you know, it's kind of key difference between the two events is, you know, there's, there's a guy pretty much standing outside the hotel shouting badges, badges, <laughs> but he only wants one kind of badge. <laughs> so we're, we're quite differently placed in, in uh, not only political economy, but uh, cultural economy, I guess. Right. Yeah, I'd, uh, uh, I'd second the, have the fear of missing out, really. Um, the FOMO was really bad for both. Doubled FOMO. Double, it's doubled FOBO, FOBO, FOBO. Yeah. Um, I, I had to deliberately limit myself to one day at Emerald City, um, and it couldn't be the day that I was giving my talk, so I couldn't go here, Peter <laughs> You Capaldi. couldn't miss your own paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, he very rudely decided to do his talk the same time as mine. Oh, no. um, and so it was it was Friday, and but I had to decide that very early, so I didn't schedule any meetings or, or anything like that. Um, for Friday, and then, uh, then I had to say, then Saturday, I'm going to have to do the com the conference, you know, the, uh, in order to to balance this and get something out of out of both of them. Um, and speaking of the badges, I saw two of the badge scalpers got into a fight uh, the, really? this afternoon over one person who wanted a badge. I can't imagine that happening at <laughs> SCMS, uh, particularly. Um, maybe with the drink tickets at the reception yeah, last night. Although maybe. there were there were plenty, you know, plenty of drink tickets. They were sort of like, you know, you know, passing them out like like drug dealers last night. So, yeah, um, I'd say one of the the things I've really enjoyed, and, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, is looking around at various people and trying to figure out which which one they're here for, mm -hmm. um, made more difficult by the fact that both the badges for ECCC and SCMS are ah, red, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you, you almost can't really tell. Um, and, and you know, obviously, those that are people that are in cosplay are, are tend to be going to the Comic Con, and those people wearing you know suits and ties, or, or jackets and ties, or, or yeah. dresses. Kind or, of, kind of more everyday cosplay, maybe amongst the. <laughs> but Apple that's fans. what I was so going to say. So we're doing like t-shirts, and uh, you can kind of, uh, you know, and I wore a specific t-shirt for for especially for my paper mm -hmm. but you can kind of you can see bits of kind of yeah and um, what would be termed everyday cosplay so the academics are more as as you'd expect predictably kind of more discreet <laughs> and toned toned down and less kind of visibly spectacular mm. but you know i might make Generally. the argument that that there are some academics who 
would feel like when when they are dressing up to do their presentation. Like I I wore a button shirt to do my presentation, which is I know, <laughs> which is cosplay for me at this point because I'm more used to wearing Alpha Yeah, I'm more used to wearing my Doctor Who t-shirts as as what I present in. Yeah. So um so there is that I mean cosplay in just the general sense of playing around with the identity that that you are personifying I think yeah I did see people in advance of SCMS who were kind of first timers uh, asking on Twitter I think it was like what should I wear uh-huh. like what's the dress code you know, <laughs> yeah. should I should I be in kind of formal shirts or mm-hmm. and I was kind of thinking it well you know I just wear what I wear which is kind of fairly kind of dressed down really um, hobo chic yeah thanks for that <laughs> yeah 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 oh, what a lovely phrase that is uh, I'm persuaded that, that is my my mode of style um, but yeah I was I think there's quite a wide range of mm-hmm. kind of, of styles of dress, really, and there's people who are who are kind of suited and booted, and and then all the way down to the likes of me. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I wonder, has anyone ever looked at the different, say, SIGs or the different areas oh, of SCMS and how yeah. they dress? Mm-hmm. What are they kind of? Almost, what are the conventions? Um, not quite subcultural, but different kind yeah. of cultural, um, different tribes within mm-hmm. uh, the overall organisation. I suspect they probably are. Because yeah. it does come down to performance and like performing identity and performing what what space you see yourself as a part of and which, you know, as far as in the fandom, kind of which group of fans you want to, you know, identify with. And then here, like which group of, you know, academic subcategory do you see yourself fitting within and do you want to try to wear something that fits in with them or something that stands out with them? It's sort of some similar concepts there. Yeah. And the age level, or, or not age level, I shouldn't say, but the, the, the level of where you are in your educational cycle, right? As a graduate student, I don't think I would have worn what I wear now, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would have wanted to appear more professional, for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, yeah. But now I, I don't feel that need anymore because I have been coming for 10 years and I've been, you know, in, in part of this community for that long. So, mm-hmm. Well, that reminds me, I was talking with Drew Morton about the idea that there's an evolution of your SCMS going. There's like the first yeah. few years and you're so green and you're so worried about your paper and all that kind of stuff. You know, and then there's the next evolution and some of it is tied to your job where then, yeah. you know, then you have tenure and it's a whole different game and then it's you've been here 20 times and so I'm curious about if you have any thoughts about that, like the evolution of your SEMA spirits, and is there any kind of analogy in the con experience? So your first con and what that was like, mm-hmm. some of the later ones, do you do you kind of get better at knowing what things, and especially like this decision then of what do I go to at SEMS and at the con, like do you get better at figuring out what are the things you mm-hmm. want so, to go So to? obviously from a UK perspective, we don't quite have tenure in the same mm-hmm. way. Um, but I think... I would say, um, trying to work out where my first SMS was, I think it might have been like 2000 or something like that, or 99 or 2000. Um, and I've, I've sort of attended most years. I don't think I've got an absolute kind of clear set, you know, full set. I think I might have missed one or two. Um, I, I still get some, you know, level of anxiety about my paper. Mm. Um, I still want to prepare that, and I still spend a lot of time. And then at the last minute, like rewriting, <laughs> uh, and I was very pleased that I was kind of pretty much bang on time. I think I was exactly twenty minutes this time, pretty much. Um, which where some years I haven't been. <laughs> I've been like the the dreaded twenty two, twenty three. <laughs> is he going to go long, really long now, or, or is he going to stop? Um, so I, I guess I've kind of learned that. I know exactly how many words. 
you know that I kind of need mm. but you still have a sense of you know I want this to go well or I want this to um, you know say something kind of a little bit new or you know to kind of do something with your kind of time I suppose the key difference is the first few times I went to SMS uh, my memory is is that I went to every session but I couldn't mm. have done because as we were talking about it that, you know, that there, are, there aren't always kind of comfort breaks or well, comfort breaks but there aren't always food breaks mm. um, so I suspect I must have like skipped uh, one session to eat during the day or something <laughs> but I pretty much was in the conference hotel the first couple of years um, you know going to as much just soaking it all up and doing as much academic stuff as possible and then I would go home and my family and friends would say hey what was that American city like what was Washington DC like and then I was like well I have no idea because I just saw the inside of the hotel and they just you know looked at me as if I was insane so I think I've kind of gone from really being focused on on the conference to kind of balancing a bit more of kind of mm. um, and you probably know more people or you want to socialise a bit more but also kind of getting out and seeing right. seeing where you are you know seeing a bit of the actual city mm-hmm. um, given that one of the draws of SMS is we're usually in a big corporate downtown hotel so you, right. can, you can just get out and, and walkable to everything yeah see stuff so I th- and actually for me now that's part of the SMS experience really mm-hmm. is kind of we're going to be in Denver next year so you know kind of think oh what might I do in, in Denver what mm-hmm. I was there, you know, mm-hmm. um, not that I could prejudge whether I'd be accepted and so on and so forth. But yeah, I think get, finding that kind of balance over time, in terms of doing more of the social stuff, doing doing more of just what you want to do mm-hmm. around and about, you know, like Comic Con, yeah, um, and not, you know you are going to miss some stuff basically so it's like yeah you know there might be kind of FOMO squared Um, (laughs) even worse if you're not at the event then it's kind of FOMO tripled or something (laughs) I don't know or to the nth degree but it's like even if you're here you just so much stuff you just can't see everybody you can't do everything you can't see every paper you want to see so I just let go of that Mm. with the result that you know I'm sometimes here and sometimes not and and I'm okay (laughs) (laughs) well Paul you had a great idea on Twitter food trucks like this is because we know know where you got that built in uh, built-in lunch break. So if we could bring some food trucks to Denver. Yeah, and uh, just to tie that into our conversation, uh, that idea came from a convention that mm. actually Matt and I attended last month. Mm. Um, the, the Gallifrey One Convention in L.A. recently brought in food trucks because during the lunch, or actually for the whole day, um, because their schedule is also so packed. Um, and just like SCMS, there are people that you know meet there to socialize. There's people that meet there to go to all the panels. There are people to go, meet, meet there and see the big guests, right? To see the big headliners, um, and there was and there was no time to eat. And mm. so I think last year was the first year they used food trucks, and it made everything so much faster and easier. And you could get your food and take it into a panel. And so um, that just seemed like, why don't we transplant that brilliant idea from Gallifrey and, and yeah. you so do it pe- here? People will be eating popcorn in the audience, then, will they? <laughs> well, I suppose well, it's <laughs> thematically fitting then yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last question, because I know you both went over to Comic-Con, and I've seen the pictures you've taken with both of you, I believe, with Peter Capaldi, and, and I think, Matt, you got to talk to him a little bit and show him a, an academic book. Is that correct? Oh, you, you did as well, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So could you talk about that experience? Of And, and here, again, I'm interested in, you know, this is such a common notion, the ACA fan, right? You're, you're mm. part academic, you're part fan. So what was that experience like, getting to meet Peter Capaldi, talk to him a little bit about what you do as academics, and then getting the cool pictures taken? 
So I normally, when I go to things like that, um, generally really just kind of self-present as a fan. Mm. I don't usually draw on my academic identity mm. and I don't you know, have a card and I don't usually have academic work and, and I just you know, basically speak as a, um, as a fan out, completely outside of uh, the ACA part of my identity so I don't know if there's a, a bit of kind of passing in a certain way there but all are really you know fitting in with a, a certain normative um, series of roles really mm. in that in that kind of fanish space um, but obviously given that you know, I had my SCMS badge on with my I had both my badges on um, so um, and you obviously have to write down your name for mm. the signing um, so when they were checking my name I was just kind of actually flashing you know <laughs> Professor Matt Hills University of Huddersfield with SCMS kind of badge. Um, so it was an unusual kind of conjunction of, of having SCMS and ECCC, which kind of led me to kind of think, well, it would make sense to talk to Peter Capaldi about the book that's come out recently that was on the Bloomsbury stand. Uh, they have a copy now, 50% off, I believe. <laughs> um, so the fact that you know, the book had come out that was about his era where he's named in the subtitle. Um, and he's somebody that I, I think actually would, I'm not sure every actor would be interested in that, but my sense of him uh, as a kind of creative, as, as an artist himself, I think he's yeah, an intellectual, uh, I thought he would actually be genuinely interested uh, in, in that. Mm -hmm. um, and he makes a real effort to kind of make a bit of time for everybody because mm. he's, you know, he's kind of uh, has a very kind of strong public persona of having been a great brand ambassador and it's just a decent guy, basically, mm. uh, which itself is articulated with a kind of left-wing politics that he's spoken about in interviews. That mm -hmm. Doesn't want it to feel like a sort of completely commercial, monetized, whiz everybody through, you know, bad commercial experience. It's still hyper-commercial, mm. but there's a, a sense of trying to kind of ma how do you manage being in that context? So I think also he was happy to kind of have the discussion because he he is invested in kind of giving that time mm -hmm. to to fans so so I was managing my identity in a particular way bringing the Yaka fan bits kind of together um, just in that moment anyway uh, in, a, in an unusual way maybe and he was obviously managing his kind of celebrity self in terms of you know being interested and kind of giving that some time because mm. I have done those events and we were talking about it um, yesterday where you know you just kind of get rushed through and you know you barely make eye contact with the with the actor let alone have a, a reasonable discussion mm. yeah um, I have the kind of opposite philosophy in that if I'm meeting uh, so certainly the, a Doctor Who celebrity at a convention um, which I do um, often um, I absolutely highlight the academic identity that I have, um, partly because um, I view Doctor Who as being somewhat instrumental in me wanting to become a professor and, and wanting to become an academic, um, and also because a lot of a, a lot of what I've written about and, and taught has been about Doctor Who, so it's been formative for me, and, um, and I, I want to let the, the people know this. Um, whether they care or not, I don't know, <laughs> but it's important for me to, to uh, I guess, gift them that in this kind of gift economy type of, of situation. Um, and so I, I did, I, I, I told um, 
I told Capaldi uh, that you know I teach his stuff in my class, and um, we you know the students love it, and Doctor Who Club loves it, and um, I, I, I gave him a copy of the Fan Phenomena book that I did a couple years ago, um, and he flipped through it and he said, "Oh, there's pictures," <laughs> uh, which was fabulous, um, and um, and and it just it, it I mean I don't I honestly don't know if he just tosses the book when he goes on the plane or he's if he's a fan he'll be keeping that in his collection but see, that's the Doctor thing he's he, him and I'm, I'm actually seeing David Tennant next week so uh, I'm giving one to him too and I figure as fans they might actually want to read it I've given a copy to Peter Davison and I have no idea if Peter Davison <laughs> no, really I, cares I'd about be, it I'd be less yeah. sure <laughs> yeah. as to right. whether he would do right. um, but it still feels good to, to at least let them know that how influential mm. The, the series has been and, and how they are. Um, I mean, you have to do all of that in the space of maybe a minute, minute and a half, um, just to kind of keep get that keep that line moving. So, um, for Capaldi or or any of the celebrities to like make you feel like you are the center of that conversation for that amount of time, yeah. and to do that times how many hundreds of people yeah. are there is that it is Quite actually a skill. An, it's a mm. it's an amazing skill um, as any of us who have like <laughs> had to have like four students at one after another and you have to like really give them your everything for that amount of time you know um, exhausts you um, so so um, yeah to me it is it is very much I want them to know the academic side of me um, as yeah. part of that I think I think when um, so you're referring to Peter Capaldi and David Tennant I think when the actors are Doctor Who fans there is a kind of possibility that they may even know some of the academic work and scholarship on Doctor Who oh sure so I had kind of been thinking about what I was going to um, talk to Peter Capaldi about and I kind of thought if I had the chance I might mention having worked with John Tullock and, and John having written the foreword to Triumph of the Time Lord because I was pretty sure, given when Peter Capaldi was kind of around in the fandom, um, well, that might have been towards the end of his time as a real dedicated fan, but I, I thought he would probably know, he'd recognise the name. Yeah. Um, did, he, did he do a review of the book or something? No, I don't think Some, so. Someone else has done the review. Like, of that era, did a, did yeah. a review of it. Yeah, yeah. But he would, but he, you know, he would know, some, he'd know certain things yeah. from the history of the fandom. So he would know probably about the first academic book on Doctor Who when it was a super unusual thing. <laughs> in the early 80s. Mm. Um, but I think in terms of the Akafan kind of question, so I knew that we had quite a different kind of approach uh, to this. But I think we should say, um, we should give a name check to, to Ben Wu. Yes. Uh, um, who uh, was doing, so, so there were panels and papers on fan conventions that, that were, you know, going on, that were clashing with, competing <laughs> with people's time in relation to obviously happening while ECCC was on. Um, so I think, and didn't they introduce Introduce the, the session by saying thanks so much to people who are here who've chosen <laughs> to be at the panel rather than being at the panel on cons rather than being at, being at, at the, the con. convention. Mm. Um, but um, Ben Wu's doing some brilliant work really on the political economies of fan conventions with some rather alarming outcomes for, for the ACA fan, it yeah. has to be said. Because mm. um, he was talking about, and, you know, I looked this up and you know, he's, of course he's absolutely right, um, that a lot of the major uh, fan cons, including ECCC, are basically uh, run by companies where when you trace the kind of the parent companies, the parent companies are specialists in information and analytics mm. and they're basically uh, what, what, what was Reed Elsevier or Elsevier 
and Informer. Um, so it's basically like Elsevier, um, you know, have been in the news in the States recently because what, University of California, was it? Yeah. They, withdrew, they withdrew uh, from, from the... paying the money. So Elsevier have a, um, you know, problematic kind of position, I guess, in terms of their business model in relation to scholarship, mm. where, of course, academics are not paid for submitting journal articles, for refereeing them, uh, for being involved in, in all those stages of the process. And then, at the end, those articles are sold um, effectively to universities. So um, universities have to pay to access work that their employees have, have done for free, almost. So it's quite a, it's quite a, uh, a business model. But that same company um, are then, if you trace it down, are Funko and Funko Pops and mm. um, brands that the kind of fans love. And, and, and they're basically running uh, internationally these kind of huge um, exhibitions, they call them in the in the industry, but, mm. but cons. Mm -hmm. um, so as academics, I mean, I know colleagues and I know American scholars who won't do refereeing and work for Elsevier and for certain companies because they are politically opposed to um, what could be interpreted as a fairly fairly blatant kind of monetization of, of uh, academics kind of affective labor or immaterial labor or just their expertise mm -hmm. on anything. Um, so yeah, so the alarming outcome of this is that potentially as an ACA fan, the academic part of your identity may be um, you know being drawn on and, and, and monetized in certain ways by the likes of Elsevier and Informer, and then you can go next door to <laughs> ECCC as a fan and think, hey, you know, kind of code switch into that identity, and uh, you're kind of your fan labour is being monetized right. um, by uh, which we, you know, we'd be familiar with both of those ideas, but it's the fact that it's essentially the same corporates mm. who are monetizing cultural capital and fan cultural capital. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, there's a question that we would want to pose about what would that mean for being an ACA fan in that kind of um, political, economic, and, and neoliberal frame. Wow. So uh, it's FOMO times two, but it's also exploitation times two. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is another spin on like the joy of doing all this, but then there's also that that aspect. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. Well, uh, then you know, future SEMSs have a lot to live up to because we've had furries and yeah. now we've got Comic Con. So <laughs> yeah. what is next? What is I was next? going to say, check the Denver calendar. Yeah. What's going on <laughs> in Denver? Check it out Denver, now. Beginning got, of April. You've got a year to figure out yeah. something cool yeah. to put in Denver. <laughs> All right, we'll see you there, and uh, thanks so much for, for chatting with us. Thanks, Thank Chris. So uh, I know that we came out of that last conversation talking about uh, you know your your inadvertent turn to the dark place, but. <laughs> Man, How about there's that? another dark place. Oh my gosh. God, there's always another dark place. Had no idea. So El Severe, if that's pronounced correctly, uh, controlling all our lives and giving us no no options. That was yeah. That was kind of an amazing. And by the way, here's this other thing. Wow, it's good to work for the company. Yes, right. The man. One thing I was struck by was was the kind of accessibility that particularly Matt seems to have mm. to um you know to british stars yeah you know like to capaldi and stuff and and i wonder if that's particular to some of the fandoms that he's interested in or the mm. context of of um 
you know, a kind of smaller media culture in general. Right. Because um, I don't, I can't think of anybody who has that kind of um, accessibility and reach into yeah. into our um, media industries here in yeah. the U.S. Well, especially us stuck here in northern Indiana, not too many big time stars come here to, you know, to either talk with us or to even allow True us enough. to pay them to yeah. sign autographs and things like that. So uh, we have to generally go elsewhere yeah. for our stardom. We did have last week, we had um, the actor Patrick Warburton. He plays uh, played Putty on Seinfeld. Um, he came because we have something here called The Shirt which every year, it's like a student fundraiser, they make this special shirt for the football games that you know the students are supposed to wear at the football games. And so he, I, I think he's Catholic. I don't, he's not an alum, so I think he's just a Catholic and thought it would be cool to come for the shirt ceremony. And he was great because he met with our students and talked all about acting and he's a voice actor and gave our students insights about that. And again, that's not something we generally get. We have to catch people when they come to football games is pretty much what our, our celebrity scene is. Which <laughs> That's something of our bait. Yeah, exactly. Come for a football game and then chat with some of our students. Yeah. So... So he was great. So thank you, Patrick Warburton. And the shirt is actually not completely hideous this year. So that's good. There was controversy, though, because it's not green. It's like grayish or dark blue. And boy, that was that, you know. Well, the thing is, it's now like in um, kind of nice, desaturated, muted middle class colors, you know, like uh, Banana Republic colors. Okay. And um and the the typefaces and the design are all kind of retro, so it's got this sort of minimalist uh, look, as wow. opposed to you know the bright Kelly green and explosion yeah. in ink factory kind of look that they've tended well, toward. And speaking recently. of television, as we often do here on this podcast, um, the frustration I saw among some some fans is that shirt is not going to pop on TV, and so when the student section, every stu- you know fan is wearing that shirt, it's not going to pop. It's going to fade into the seats. So that's why they didn't like it. But it's the kind of shirt you can actually wear well, to like yeah. out in a public. I know. I was thinking like I could wear that shirt. Yeah. But you're not going to pop on TV. Well, so For all kinds of reasons. <laughs> well, that's why we have a podcast where we don't have to we don't have to pop. Visually. No, we don't. We don't. We just have to we just have to pop in and and and. <laughs> Record a quick conversation. And we have pop filters, in fact. We're not we going to pop because we have pop filters. Oh, Lord. Wow. Okay. Th- things are degenerating. I think it's I think it's time for this one to, to relocate to uh, uh, a venue with comestibles. <laughs> so, on that note, thank you for listening to us. Acomedia is produced with the support of the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we are grateful for producer help from Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. Stephanie Brown at Washington University, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford. And Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas at Austin. And his what? Golden ears. Golden ears. And uh, we also thank SCMS, not the conference, but the organization, SCMS, for providing us support. We couldn't do it without you, so thank you, SCMS. And thank you to all of you for listening. And how would someone reach us if they wanted to establish uh, some form of, of written communication? I am so glad you asked that, because we have so many forms of reaching outness that we can offer. We have a website, acahyphenmedia.org, mm-hmm. which I got down now. Mm-hmm. We have an email address, info at acahyphenmedia. Oh, yeah. We have a Twitter feed, Aka underscore That's media. It. That oh, is it. Yeah. 
And uh, and we do retweet on that one. I should note, if, if you're not a follower and you're like, well, well, how many tweets about a podcast can I see? Actually, we, we use that. Maybe just me. I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot, so it's probably just me. Um, I retweet things of, of academic interest. So there's news about um, you know new developments. For instance, I saw Elsevier has some sort of new financial system. Um, that they're working up and they've got Norway to buy into it, but it sounds just as bad. Um, so anyways, you can learn that kind of stuff. And then I also try to retweet things of, you know, people offering suggestions, teaching suggestions, things like that. So follow us for general academic... Consider it to be a carefully curated uh, academic media studies feed. I think that sounds about right. Yeah. And not just, you know, something for me to do for eight hours a day because I'm on Twitter. No. It would never be that. No. Is that it? Is that all of our... I think that's it. Right. Uh, happy grading. Happy writing. Happy reading. Happy spring. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I probably yelled too loud, but oh my God, it's finally above like 40 here. Let's get some runs. Let's get some runs. Let's get some beers. Is that appropriate? It's totally appropriate. <laughs>